0: Hey, we're going to continue, again, our journey through the book of Acts. Um, it's been exciting. I don't know. I, for myself, as I've been reading through these, I definitely have felt my heart be changed in different ways and softened, and I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but for me, going through this, the book of Acts has been really encouraging so far. So we're going to be continuing, um, and we're going to be looking at more about the early days of the church and what God's Spirit is doing through um, Jesus's followers. So last week, we looked at Acts chapter 3, where two of the disciples of Jesus, John and Peter, are headed to the temple for the three o'clock prayer meeting, and yet uh, they never actually made it to that prayer meeting because God had other plans, right? Um, Peter and John, they notice a man with disabled legs begging for money, and they stop, they look him in the eyes, and they help him up. And it's in the name of their risen king, in the name of Jesus that he, his legs are fully healed, and he is able to dance with joy into the temple with Peter and John, and at that point, Peter sees the crowd gathering as people are recognizing this guy, and he starts to preach the good news, news which told us that through, that though Jerusalem had killed their king, God raised him up, and that same life-giving power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that restores all creation and calls all people to turn from sin and back to God. And so at the end of last week, things looked great, right? Um, A man was healed, the gospel was preached, the hope of restoration of all creation was on the horizon. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, enter stage right, Acts chapter 4. Let's read. It says, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of people came to about 5,000. So here we see that things were going well, people were listening, and it says that 5,000 men believed, right? And then, if that number sounds familiar to you, it should because that's the same number of people, um, of men that Jesus feeds in his miracle of the multiplying of the loaves of fish. Um, Jesus' spirit is at work again, but this time it's not the stomachs of the people that are being fed, it's their hearts. But not everyone is receptive. No, the leaders of the temple, specifically a group called the Sadducees, are not happy. And it says, in fact, they were annoyed or in some translations, maybe greatly annoyed, um, that Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And it's only later on in Acts that Luke tells us actually kind of what's going on here. He gives us some insight because we, you know, we're a little bit distanced from the culture of the Sadducees. um, But in Acts 23, we have later on Paul, the Apostle Paul, is on trial. And he's brought in front of a bunch of temple leaders for being a witness to the gospel. So very similar to Peter and John. And in this scene, you have two Jewish groups. You have the Pharisees, who were kind of the blue-collar teachers of the law, and then you have the Sadducees, the upper wealthy echelon crust. They were the ones who um, were were the wealthy theologians. But more than this, Luke emphasizes one critical difference between these groups. He says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angels nor spirit, But the Pharisees affirm them both. And this makes sense, right? The wealthy, for the wealthy to believe. Um, Why would the Sadducees believe there is anything after death if they have all they need right here in the here and now, right? Um, And so, like casually tossing a liberal opinion into the supper conversation at family Thanksgiving, Paul... Uh, not only says he's a Pharisee, but doubles down on the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And the room just erupts into chaos. And so now if we go back to Acts chapter 4, um, we, can, we can start to understand why the Sadducees were so annoyed by Peter's words. Peter and John are claiming that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the re- uh, risen from the dead. And they're not happy. And yet, the sun goes down on their anger, and they put Peter and John into jail overnight. But the fact that it's already evening reveals something kind of unique about last week's passage, because they started preaching at 3 p.m., right? The prayer meeting, unless they were super late, but they were, they were headed to that 3 o'clock prayer meeting, and it's already evening. And so the people had been gathered together, and were listening to them preach for probably like three hours or more. I don't know what it was, but they were in it for a lot... A lot longer than 25 minutes, right? Uh, And they were clinging to every word. But Peter and John weren't imprisoned for the length of their sermons. They were imprisoned for the content. And so let's keep reading. It says, The next day their rulers and elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem um, with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all the members of the high priestly family. After they had had Peter and John stand before them, They began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, uh, by by him this man is standing here before you healthy this jesus is the stone rejected by you builders which has become the cornerstone there is no salvation or there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved so the religious council gets together the next morning and luke gives us a list of all the types of people who are there he starts with kind of that broad term, rulers, which is going to be important later on in the chapter. Uh, but essentially, if you look at Luke's list of the people who are in assembly, it's safe to say all the heavy hitters are there. You've got the theologians, the law enforcers, and the high priests, and his whole family. And they all come together, and the big question that they have for Peter and John is to ask, by what power or in what name they perform this miracle of healing? And Peter can see past their question, though, because he essentially says, well, if all you're asking is how the man born with disabled legs was raised, then the answer is very simple. This man is standing by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who, by the way, you crucified, but God raised to life. And then Peter doubles down on the ruler's rejection of Jesus by quoting a passage from Scripture. It's the same passage that Jesus quotes in the Gospel of Luke. It's from a psalm that Jesus quotes actually in front of the chief priests and teachers of the law. After he tells a story, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but it's a story of a vineyard owner who sends his son to gather the harvest from his tenants, and the tenants respond by killing the son to gain his inheritance. And he then, uh, Jesus then quotes the psalm to say, just as the stone is rejected, so the son is rejected. And I'm sure that Peter knows that some of those chief priests and teachers of the law who heard Jesus speak this parable are probably in that assembly today. But he doesn't end his speech with condemnation of their rejection. He ends by proclaiming that in Jesus' name, and Jesus' name only, is salvation found. It's in this name that Peter and John must be saved, and it is in this name that the rulers of the temple council must be saved. Salvation is preached and open to all. Peter and John, in spite of being put on trial, are standing as witnesses of that good news. And notice the description that Peter, um, uh, of, of Peter before he speaks. Luke says, The Holy Spirit filled Peter, and then he spoke. The Spirit was present, giving him courage to speak. And as we read on, we'll see that the council sees that something is happening. Something is different about Peter says that when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. And so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God Over what had been done, for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So the council sees the boldness of Peter and John. They see that something is different about the both of them. But what is tragic is that while the council realizes that they had been with Jesus, they don't realize that Jesus is with them now. They don't see his presence in the boldness with which they speak and the love in which they heal. They are so close to salvation, but they fear the fear of losing power causes them to turn on the very men who wanted to join with them in prayer and worship at the 3 o'clock prayer meeting. Instead of welcoming them with the faithful love of Yahweh, they threaten them to no longer speak of what brings them life, joy, and hope they are not to speak or teach in Jesus' name ever again. But Peter and John, they don't back down. They stand on the conviction that God wants them to preach. And so they cannot listen to the authority of the council, but instead must listen to the authority of God. The threats of the religious leaders will not make them stop preaching the life and hope of Jesus raised from the dead. Now, I could be wrong, but when I think when we think of persecution against Christians, we tend to think of persecution coming from outside re- outside of our religious community, but here in Acts 4, we see that persecution is coming from within. Like I mentioned last week, for the early Christians, following Jesus didn't mean the rejection of their Jewish heritage or the rejection of their temple communities. So when Peter and John are standing before the authorities, it's like they're being threatened by their own church community, specifically their church leaders. These threats to silence are coming from the leaders who have shared in the annual festivals, taught them the Bible, and led them in prayer meetings. These are the leaders who everyone looks up to, you know, in hopes that their children might become, like, you know, just as devout to God as they. These are the people who are supposed to have the ear of God and the heart to follow his law, and yet these are the people who have turned on Peter and John. And I'm sure that in spite of their boldness, this still hurts, And yet, God is still present. His spirit is right there in the midst of this trial, strengthening Peter and John and giving Peter the right words. And this brings me just to my first point here. The spirit is with us when we experience hurt from church leadership. As Nathan preached before we started our series in Acts, the church is not Jesus. Neither are church leaders, right? We are all broken people. We all have fears of losing control. And Jesus knew that this would happen. He knew that fear of him would motivate some of the Jewish leaders to turn on, their, on the Christians in their congregation. When Jesus warned his disciples of the destruction of the temple, they asked him when it would happen. And he replied to them with a list of, of things. He said there going to be famines, wars, and earthquakes. But after this, he says softly to them, he says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, And you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. And so Jesus has warned his followers that their synagogue, their temple communities, their assemblies will turn on them. They'll be imprisoned, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. uh, There's a purpose in all of this, and he continues, and he says, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with his followers as they face persecution and gives them boldness to speak, boldness to be a witness, even to those who would threaten their lives. So within our own communities, though we don't necessarily face threats of death, we do still have leaders who fail us. We do still have people who hurt us. And sometimes we can speak the truth to them, we can convince them of the goodness of the life and healing that they are trying to put a stop to, But other times the wisest move is to not engage and to find space for healing, to release them from their debts and to let go of bitterness and find healing in Jesus and surround yourself with a healthy Christian community. And that too can bear witness to the gospel. So let's continue reading. It says, After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father David, your servant. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your words with all boldness. So while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they had assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Here we see the disciples' response to persecution is not to shrink back, but instead to gather to pray for boldness and for God's continued work. They start by acknowledging God's power as creator, and then they quote from Psalm 2, which we looked at today, ashen read for us. And now I have this dream at some point, I hope somebody will do this, but create a Bible reading plan that focuses on the Old Testament passages that get quoted the most in the New Testament. Um, that's, ah, oh, that would be so good. Um, if this book were made, Psalm 2 would definitely be in, uh, would be one of those passages. It gets quoted a lot in the New Testament. It's, and it's, it's a weird Psalm. Like we read it. I think we all kind of felt there's a little, it's a little, you know, there's the wrath of God, which is sometimes I think we, we struggle with, we get a little awkward, but um, I'm so glad that we read it today because it's a poem that essentially says that though the rulers of the world refuse Yahweh and his appointed king, the king will reign and will rule the nations. From this psalm, we get the phrase, you are my son, uh, meaning the king, which is used at Jesus' baptism, right? You are my son, in you I am well pleased. And we also get that odd image of the anointed king ruling with a rod of iron, which is then reused in the book of Revelation, talking about Jesus' reign over the whole world. And here in Acts 4, we see the disciples familiar with this psalm are seeing that just as the rulers in the psalm rejected God and his anointed king, so too we see a rejection of Jesus, God's chosen king. But it's not the rulers of the nations who are rejecting him this time. It's the rulers of God's very temple. Again, the disciples see that the events that they are experiencing are foreshadowed in the words of the psalms. Here, just like in Acts chapter 1, we see that the church again is gathering to pray, to read the scriptures and to trust God they know God is in control because not only did he create the world but the very rejection of Jesus was foreshadowed in scriptures that he inspired through his spirit the disciples can pray with confidence knowing that no matter what happens God is working his plan of salvation so they pray for boldness and for God's continued signs and wonders to be on display and the moment they finish The room is shaken, the spirit fills them, and they can't help but speak boldly. And if that at all sounds familiar to you, it should because there are a lot of similarities between Acts 2 and Acts 4. Here we have the church, again, is gathering to pray. The place is shaken violently. The spirit is poured out. The disciples preach boldly. And then right afterwards, we're going to read about it, radical generosity ensues. So Pentecost is happening all over again, which... The church, which means that the the church needed not just one. They continue to need God to seek after him in prayer and have his spirit be poured out on them time and time again. And this doesn't just mean that when we don't pray, the spirit leaves us, but rather that when our hearts are seeking God as a church community, the spirit is given more room for Jesus to reign with power in our lives. The boldness comes from seeking him humbly in prayer And so as a church, we need to continue this up, right? We need to continue to gather together to ask God's Spirit to fall on us and to empower us to boldly be witnesses to the good news and also to empower us to be people that see the wonders of God displayed in our communities, both inside and outside the church. And this brings me to my second point. The Spirit is with us when we pray for our our boldness and for God's wonders. Pray, pray, pray. This is the theme that's woven throughout Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Um, As a church, we need to continue to seek God in prayer and expect that he's going to work in and through us in mighty ways. So let's just finish up the chapter. It says, Now the entire group of those who believed were one of heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them. The, for there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the, one, the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, it's a long intro, um, he sold a field that he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so here, just like in Acts chapter 2, we see that the spirit is poured out and the people give radically. The wealthy are brought down so that the poor are brought up. Right? Every valley shall be exalted and every hill made low. This is the upside-down kingdom in action. This is what the church can and should be about. But in order for the church to give, we need to be honest about our needs. I think it can be easy for us to hide those needs and to continue to carry those burdens ourselves week after week. But we don't have to experience, um, we, well, we don't, we don't want to experience the shame in our vulnerability. But vulnerability and authenticity, right, is exactly what the church is about. It's being authentic with who we are and where we're at and being welcomed in and love. And, and so finally, my last point here is that the spirit is with us when we are radically generous and honest about our need. And as the church gives we won't make the same mistake as the Sadducees. We won't, who believed that this current kingdom was all that we needed. No, instead, as we give, we're gonna long for a kingdom where the hungry are filled, captives are released, and the meek inherit the earth. When we boldly give, God's spirit is there. And when we have the courage to speak of our needs, God's spirit is there. In both, you're giving up control. We are trusting God, and we are building the church. And so... Let us hold to the spirit when leaders disappoint us. Let us seek the spirit when we gather to pray and let us feel his joy in us as we share about our needs and as we respond generously to one another. There's one thing I hope that you can remember from this passage is it's that the Holy Spirit is present in you and in me. And so let us boldly go into this week knowing that as we go, that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead goes with you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that though the early church faced opposition, that you were still working in and through them, God, that you were giving them boldness to speak, you were giving them boldness to gather together to pray, and you were giving them boldness to go and give generously of what they had. And so, God, I ask that we would be a generous church. God, I ask that we would be a people that that seek you in prayer and that we would be those who would, um, yeah, just be able to forgive. And so, Um, I thank you, God, that you are present here with us. Your spirit is with us. We continue to see that. And so, yeah, I just pray for North Sight as we go this week in your name.